All righty. Go. I've also learned to fake it pretty well after being 20-some years in the field and running medical groups, academic medical groups, hospitals, health systems, health plans, behavioral health plans, care management programs, IPAs. You know, you do pick up a thing or two along the way. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A self-proclaimed optimist who says he is a change agent with a funny name, Amir Dan Rubin has spent his entire career shaping and reshaping leading healthcare delivery systems in the U.S. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, uh, David, I was thinking about Amir and how his family comes from Israel and um, how many companies in the Valley and how many organizations in the Valley are founded or led by immigrants and how important that is to our you know, oh, overall tech economy. It's unbelievable. I was recently listening to a, uh, uh, a podcast from our colleague, Luke Timmerman, who was interviewing the um, uh, uh, Elias Zerhouni uh, from, from yeah. Sanofi, who actually came from Algeria. Um, and you see it all throughout health, all throughout medical research. The statistics are mm-hmm. unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, uh, healthcare has the largest number of, of foreign-born uh, or foreign-descended workers of any industry. Uh, 28% of physicians, 24% of nurses and home health aides are from other countries originally. It's really quite fascinating. 44% of cardiologists, I read. Then, of course, there's all the tech companies founded by first or second generation immigrants like Apple and Google and Facebook and Amazon and IBM and Uber and Yahoo. It kind of goes on and on. Absolutely. And then someone did some study where if you look, you know, if you look at the American Nobel laureates, um, an unbelievably high proportion are immigrants or the offspring of immigrants or the immediate or like the first generation, second generation. I tried parking in the Nobel laureate parking lot at Berkeley, Berkeley. once and I got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of folks whose family comes from out of town, uh, Amir Rubin grew up in Los Angeles, the child of Israeli parents. It was always his dream, even from childhood, to be in business because it seemed very American, even though he had no real idea what that meant, the business part. A chance volunteer stint at a hospital in high school, plus a need to fill a random college elective, led Amir to, career, to a career in business in the healthcare sector, where he has remained ever since. And welcome, Amir. Very much appreciate your coming on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks to be here. Yeah, I immigrated all the way from New Jersey. Happy to be here. <laughs> what exit? <laughs> <laughs> but your parents dragged you there, as I understand it. And, uh, you know, I know that you've spent your career, you know, thinking about business, but affecting it mostly in medicine. Which was the calling, business or medicine? Well, as you said, uh, Lisa and David, it was a little bit uh, serendipitous. You know, ha- having grown up uh, with foreign parents and uh, excited about what it meant to be, you know, American, I was like, management, business, that sounds great. And uh, I was studying uh, business and economics, and as you described, uh, I needed an elective my junior year of college at Cal Berkeley. Go Bears. And, yes, Go Bears. And this class that fit into my schedule uh, was this thing called health economics. And, you know, I had volunteered in, in, in hospitals, but mostly around community service type things. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was an electrical engineer. And uh, it really struck me. I was like, wow, there's this incredible challenge in healthcare with um, uh, an issue of access to the uh, for folks who are uninsured, an issue of 
uh, wage inflation or, or, or price inflation, an issue of escalating costs. Um, service and quality weren't as big on the agenda at, at that time. And, you know, we were probably spending 10% of GDP at the time, which was unsustainable, and we're now at 18%. So it seemed to me uh, that this was a really compelling problem in a field that focused on uh, something important to everybody, their, their health and well-being. So it sounds like your path was sort of Exodus meets Alex P. Keaton, I guess. Um, <laughs> it, it, uh, I'm sure we have the music for one of those. Um, but, uh, but um, you know, what was interesting is how you, you know, your, your, the way you described your, the way you got interested in this particular area. It reminds me a little bit of our uh, conversation um, uh, a year or two ago with Bob Kocher. Yeah. Where, I mean, I, I think there must, there must be folks like you who, see this as sort of this exciting intellectual problem, you know, that, that are sort of, I think many people are drawn to healthcare, oh, they want to take care of people, they want to, you know, they sort of see it, here's an individual who's who's ill, but I guess there's this other subset of folks who wind up having these incredibly high impacts, who really, who are able to sort of abstract out one level and see it as more of a, of a, of a systems challenge, as sort of an exciting, intellectual, impactful systems problem. Is that sort of the perspective you brought to it? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great comment. I I, I think that is trademark tectonics. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's an interesting point. Um, I think that is what is so compelling about working in healthcare. Uh, first of all, it's it's something that's important to everyone, and so it resonates. And and having a positive impact on people's lives um, resonated with me personally, but. Um, it is something that to make an impact on it, at least from a management perspective, one does have to navigate a complex system and understand how that system functions and sometimes dysfunctions <laughs> uh, and, and how to correct those functions. And, um, and frankly, when you study economics, you're thinking a lot about, you know, what makes an economic system work. And healthcare had a lot of features that uh, broke those rules. We're like, oh, well, you don't have this. You don't have uh, symmetry of understanding of information. You don't have easy entry and exit into markets. You have a lot of things that uh, we were taught to assume exist in markets, and, and they didn't in, in healthcare. And so, um, and now we've learned from folks like Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman that even what we believed in, in traditional economics can be modified by um, psychology and, and, and what we now call behavioral economics. So, um, you know, what, what the exciting thing is, how do we make positive impact on a lot of people and make change uh, in a complex system? So, yeah, that is very exciting. And uh, it, it did kind of combine my interest uh, or what I thought I'd be interested in is in, you know, how do you make change in, in, in complex organizations or, or management it's really uh, how do you help improve health and well-being for people? So, yeah, those, those themes really did come together for me. So, so just to come back to the behavioral economics, you know, there was a relatively recent piece uh, in the Times by a friend, Aaron Carroll, who was saying, you know, everyone is talking about behavioral economics and healthcare, but that actually to date, the data supporting the use of nudge and behavioral economics has actually been far less impactful than many were expecting. I'm sure you saw that piece and, you know, and, and are aware of the, the issue more generally. Uh, has that surprised you? Yeah, I, I saw the piece, and, and no, I, I don't. I don't think um, the piece surprised me. I mean, it was a high-level piece and an interesting point. I think we're uh, really in healthcare uh, historically. We have not really focused on all the levers we need to make behavior change. Um, 
Um, we have usually focused on the issue in front of us and um, worked within the background incentives that we're, we're driving. So, you know, we have a healthcare system that's been very acute focus-based, uh, very um, hospital focus-based. The people that work in those organizations are very focused on the next person walking in front of them. Uh, the promotional systems, the uh, academic systems, the acknowledgement systems, the papers that are published, uh, the way people are paid, uh, the way consumers are incentivized through their insurance, they've all aligned that way. So it's not too surprising to me that uh, just one pull of the lever is not going to uh, so simply change behaviors. Having said that, uh, we have done a lot of work uh, at One Medical and in, in my prior organizations, including at Stanford at UCLA, on, you know, how do, how do you change behaviors and, and how do you leverage um, uh, what we learned from behavioral economics? Uh, how do you leverage what's a default? Um, how do you think about loss aversion? How should you communicate uh, to a patient? Is there a 95% chance of success or a 5% chance of failure? And there's a lot of interesting studies that show uh, people will make different decisions based on how you present that data. Um, there's even data that shows that actually if a radiologist when reading a film has a picture of the patient in front of them uh, uh, in their computer, for example, there are less reading errors. So there's actually really small things that wow. we have used and leveraged over time um, in, in impacting uh, the patient experience. We'll put information about the individual. So as to not make this just about a medical record number, but here's a person with a name and here's their family. Um, there's evidence to show that people are more diligent. Um, you know, there, a lot of this needs to be studied and published and, and compared against controls, but um, certainly in, in, in my career, we're making, we've been making a lot of changes. At One Medical, we, we have uh, clicks and bricks. We're a member-based tech-enabled primary care organization, we think a lot about behavior change, both through how we leverage that technology and how we reduce friction, um, and also um, how we can leverage design, physical design, experience design, um, to change behaviors. So I, I think, you know, we're, uh, we have a lot of uh, factors that, that drive behaviors in healthcare and some point in different and opposing directions. And so, I think it's an issue of how do we point them in the in the same direction. So speaking of uh, behaviors, you told me that you were young in love and geographically unaware of Houston was when you took your first health system job at Memorial Hermann. Yes. Um, what did what did you find out in the real world, uh, being a businessman in healthcare, that you didn't know when you took that role? Well, um, I've been very fortunate to work with amazing people in in great organizations, and, and certainly had that fortune at, uh, at Memorial Hermann. Um, I think w one of the things I, I really saw and learned there is um, it, it, it's one thing to think about economic models or business theory, and it's a different thing to make that happen um, and um, make change through thousands of people. So um, th those were some of the issues that uh, certainly came to the fore. So you spent the most of the last 20 years on the health system side, uh, first at UCLA, then CEO of Stanford Health System. What, you know, as you step 
kind of, you know, back and look at all of those things, what were the common themes and what were the the not so common themes? Yeah, great, great question. You know, I, I think throughout my career, what I've to do is align um, purpose with people and how we manage performance. So I, I'd say the common theme is trying to align um, people in an organization around a common purpose, a vision, a mission, a goal, an objective. Um, it's certainly what motivates me. It's certainly why I've been so excited to be in healthcare. Um, and for the given organizations that we're in to align around that purpose. And then to make sure we have the right uh, team members and people aligned and, and the different approaches that we might use to do that. And then that we design the organization, the processes, the incentives, um, the technology, um, so we can perform and our people can be successful to achieve that purpose. And so uh, one of the things that I enjoy about management in complex organizations is um, how do you try to make those things align? And, and as we started this conversation, also align it in a complex ecosystem um, that, that's the healthcare ecosystem and, and, and drive towards the outcomes we like. So, so, some, so an interesting question, I guess, I, I wonder about is you've led a number of health systems um, that traditionally would have been led by, by a physician, right, or someone who, who trained as an MD. And a key part of the success, exactly as you're just describing, is being able to motivate organizations to understand where they're coming from. Do you think that your <clears throat> excuse me, do you think that your background uh, that your sort of business and not medical background has um, helped you sort of see sort of see the overall perspective? Has there been issues where MDs are like, in general, I'm not going to take orders from anyone, and I'm certainly not going to take orders from a non-MD. How, how have you navigated that? Yeah, it, I, I mean, my general comment is, no, I, I, I think uh, I, I haven't seen, per se, huge differences, and I, I get to interact with amazing uh, professionals, providers, nurses, leaders who have all kinds of backgrounds, medical backgrounds, nursing backgrounds, management backgrounds. Many these days have a combination. Um, you know, the folks running complex organizations are running complex organizations, and, um, you know, they're each coming from their backgrounds, bringing the skills they, they bring. You know, many people running these complex health systems have you know, significant either training and management and or experience, whether or not they might have come from a medical background or a, or a nursing background or some, some other background. Um, so I, I think for me, where kind of what I um, tend to bring is um, I tend to think from a process improvement type perspective. That's uh, maybe um, what I've focused on through my education and also through my career. And so that's how I just tend to um, look at things, and that's the lens I look at. And, you know, other people might bring other lenses and skills, and I think on a, on a, in an organization, on a leadership team, you, you want a combination of, of skills. You know, I, I've also learned to fake it pretty well after being, you know, 20-some <laughs> years in the field and, you know, running medical groups, academic medical groups, hospitals, health systems, health plans, behavioral health plans, care management programs, IPAs. You know, you do you do pick up a thing or two along the way, but but the the key often is not that one is going to be directing or 
or guiding somebody in their clinical practice, at least in, in my roles, it's more about how do we set up an environment and infrastructure that allows people to be successful in what it is they do. And certainly when um, it, it's helpful to understand uh, what people do in their fields, uh, but that's usually not what I've been called upon. Um, it's usually about, okay, there's, there's an incentive broken. There's a process broken. We don't have a right team. Uh, we don't have a strategy. Uh, we need to um, invest in an area. And, you know, at some level, maybe like venture capital, you, you learn about a technical area and say, okay, well, we're going to invest in these amazing people, these talents, these fields. Uh, we're going to talk to experts about what are the insights. Should we make this investment in this imaging field or radiation oncology field or stem cell field? Um, and it, it's really the, the content knowledge has, has been more in that vein rather than this patient in front of you, I would recommend this because I clearly don't have that um, that background. So you know the, that famous routine by Monty Python, uh, one of their movies about the machines that go ping. Switch everything on. Very impressive, very impressive. And what are you doing this morning? It's a birth. Ah, what sort of thing is that? Well, that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy. Wonderful what we can do nowadays. Ah, I see you have the machine that goes bing. This is my favorite. You see, we lease this back from the company we sold it to, and that way it comes under the monthly current budget and not the capital account. I, I am familiar with that, yes. And I bought quite a few of those machines, yes. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, I mean, like, you know, in a world where we talk about value-based healthcare, but really haven't implemented it much anywhere, is that still the mentality at most of the academic medical centers, or is it changing? Um, well, I, I think a few comments. Um, I, I think, first of all, um, one of the, the, the pivots I've done in my career here recently is tried to transition to more of the outpatient ambulatory population health longitudinal care arena, because I think there's a tremendous opportunity to make change there. Having said that, People are going to have cancer. People are going to have cardiac conditions. There's an amazing, uh, you know, amazing innovation in immunotherapies and stem cells and, and hopefully, you know, genomics, um, uh, minimally invasive um, interventional approaches, new imaging and, and new ways to detect things sooner, you know, combining new data sources um, beyond the clinical data to... Um, environmental and, and, and personal information. So, you know, I think there is a tremendous place and space for innovation in complex care. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, in, in society, we will want uh, answers to neurodegenerative diseases, to Alzheimer's, uh, and they may be they may be drugs, they may be intervention, maybe diagnostics. So, you know, it, there is a place. For that, and um, and we have amazing academic health systems in this country who are, by and large, you know, designed to do that, and they're also designed to train uh, the incredible um, clinicians that we have in this country, who, in, in general, are amazingly trained all across the country. Um, and so, again, they they by and large have been built for that purpose. Um, now. At the same time, you know, as a society, we really hadn't built the economics uh, 
and incentives to manage longitudinal chronic care, to manage outpatient and ambulatory care. But I, I don't know if it's at the fault of the complex care interventional innovators. Okay, but Amir, Amir, let me ask you this, though, because it, it, I mean, it, it directly relates to, for example, some of some stuff from Stanford. Um, the one of the big debates is, okay, what is the role of hospital systems? Are they going to, like, is the future even more hospitals? Or most of the thinking that I keep hearing is like, oh, we're heading in a feud where there are going to be fewer and fewer hospitals. More and more care is going to be outpatient. All these, all the hospitals are going to be sort of, you know, dinosaurs. Um, Jonathan Bush, I heard him speak. Uh, we were at some panel together. He showed up at Stanford and he's like, look around, look at all this building that's occurring here. This is like, this is the exact opposite of the direction healthcare needs to be going. Why is there so much building going on at, at Stanford? That's got to be the exact opposite. Why are all these big hospitals building more and more and more? It's the exact example of all the wrong incentives and everything that's wrong about healthcare are places like Stanford going on huge building sprees. What's your view of that? Yeah, I, I think a couple of reflections. I think, one, in the scheme of inpatient care, just to speak to Stanford, it's actually a pretty small hospital, you know, a 500-bed tertiary hospital. Mo- most of the building... There is a seismic renewal that's needed for the hospital to withstand an 8.2 earthquake, and that's largely replacement. So, uh, and most of the building you see there is around research and innovation labs. And, and you know, we have at Stanford, we had 50-year-old 50, 50 buildings that it was time to uh, renovate. You know, we, we were in some of the original hospitals. So, you know, I, I see by and large you have upgrading of um, and bringing technology and, and capital up, up to date, you actually don't see in this country massive growth in inpatient beds. And most of these hospitals are now health systems. Uh, and at least I could speak to Stanford, most of our growth was outpatient, you know, uh, with outpatient regional physician practices, community practices, regional cancer centers, neuroscience centers, most of that was outpatient. So right. um, ha- having said all of that, you know, part of my interest in, in, in joining and coming to One Medical is there is a tremendous gap in how we're dealing with um, ambulatory outpatient longitudinal care. And at One Medical, we are, you know, we're built for speed in that area. You know, we're not built for speed to uh, do complex, uh, innovative science and research and, and teaching, but we're built to transform uh, healthcare through primary care and so would you see it that so I've been in one medical for a while um, uh, and I you know been um, uh, I love it actually I subscribe my folks to it so even when they're in the area they can completely can go in and see someone so I'm familiar with all my yuppie friends are familiar with it the the, the, the question about it is is it really a model for sort of actual primary care in a way like um, um, you know, like like Farzad's thing is, or Rashika's is, or is it more sort of like yuppie care for the well? Like if you're well, like I love the fact that all my, you know, devices, my blood pressure stuff, whatever, it's automatically uploaded. I can see someone when I want to, but it's not, it doesn't get the sense of, here's an individual who is deeply taking care of me. It's here's a very efficient organization that's sort of light touch and it's, it's has a pleasant office and it's all very, you know, it's sort of like health club medicine where it's it's sort of like concierge light where it doesn't cost like whatever Jordan Schlain thing costs. But also, you know, you, you know, and you get a little bit, you know, nicer offices. But is it is that the is it really transforming primary care or is it just sort of give people who are basically well an opportunity to get, you know, vaccinated and, you know, an annual checkup? 
Uh, you, you just answered the behavioral economics question. We, we, we fooled you. Okay. We brought you in with frictionless care. We made the decision we wanted you to choose, which was primary care, the easy decision, not the emergency department, not, not the complex care solution. And through delivering you know, net promoter scores of 90, we've actually in, uh, increased primary care visits and decreased um, specialty emergency and hospital visits. So, for example, we just... One of our uh, clients is one, one of the largest uh, professional services firms in the United States and the U.S. We did a study with them. On our first year, on a matched cohort basis, the cohort uh, that signed up for One Medical, which, by the way, was 40% of their employee base, had an 8% reduction in spend year one. And we, sh we showed almost a 30% reduction in emergency visits because 24-7 access, I really love coming there. I could get in. Uh, we showed less hospitalizations. We showed less use of imaging. We don't have ancillaries. Our providers are all salaried. We don't make money on MRs and CT scans. Uh, we have our own tech stack. Uh, we have reminders on mammograms and pap smears. Uh, pap smears. Um, so actually, you know, instead of forcing people into a narrow network with uh, complex economics, we, we pulled a behavioral economics play on you, which was, let's just give you something you love that's really to, easy to access. Let's give you a default option that has less friction, that is, uh, you know, in Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, you know, here's a low energy effort. I can click or call and have a video chat in one or two minutes at any point. But you also select for basically healthy people. Well, I don't know. When you sign up 40% of a company, we now have 1,100 companies. Uh, we're growing 30 to 40% a year. We're in seven states across the U.S. Um, it, it is fair to say that we have, you know, um, served a commercial uh, employed population. Uh, but I think it's also fair to say uh, in one of our states we participate, in, in most we do, with the health plan's primary care medical home. So we get data from the plan. Uh, and compared to their other primary care practices on a risk-adjusted basis, we see the same thing, 40 to 50% less utilization. We've probably saved them, compared to the peer group, $15 million just through our primary care. Um, so, you know, we, we are doing for the commercial population which is really who we've been serving, even though we do, do serve some pediatrics and we do serve some seniors. Um, you know, we, we are doing it, what employers, we just met with a very large Silicon Valley company that we're serving, and they said, you're our last hope because nobody else is doing anything to change the trajectory for employers' healthcare spend. Uh, I think we are, and we're doing it not through a narrow network, not through a benefit design that draws a high deductible, but by actually just giving people something they really like and want to use. And because we've structured it in a way where our providers are employed, where we practice value-based care, we're, we're actually <laughs> delivering value-based care, but we don't have to necessarily, to the at least to the member or patient, sell it as value-based care. We sell it as um, amazing access and great quality care. So... Amir, between your roles as CEO of Stanford and CEO of One Medical, you took a brief foray to uh, what many would consider the dark side, you know, the insurance side of the world and Optum. 
What was that like by comparison to the rest of your career being on the delivery system side? Was there a difference or was there something you particularly saw or learned that informed your, your going forward? Yeah, it was a great opportunity. I mean, it was a little bit uh, also, I, I guess I should probably make better uh, career <laughs> in, uh, or, or use more data in making career decisions. But I met the CEO or the then CEO, Steve Hemsley, uh, on a panel at a conference and we started chatting. And uh, he said, why don't you just come join us? And um, I, you know, I, I, I liked Seinfeld, the uh, reruns, which uh, they say was a show about nothing. I, I just joined Optum and United Health Group in a job about nothing. I just came in and joined. <laughs> and I ended up working for the, for the CEO of Optum, who was fabulous. And I had a great opportunity to run a bunch of different areas from capitated Medicare Advantage medical groups to behavioral health plan, to care and case management programs, to specialty networks, to a revenue cycle and practice management company, you know. And- so what was the observation that you got from being on that side of, of working with delivery system versus being inside? Yeah, it, a, a, a different, you know, in, and in the role I was, you're kind of not in, if you will, those companies. You're kind of managing multiple, so you're kind of a portfolio uh, manager, if you will, at least in, in in, in the functions I was in, and um, and you know, doing it at immense scale, and I think the organization uh, does it well at that immense scale. Uh, for me, when I got a call at One Medical, though, it it, it excited me back about I really want to be back in the CEO spot, directly making change on an organization and trying to more directly make change in the healthcare system. Um, and uh, get off my 100% travel schedule that I had working at a Minnesota-based company living yeah. in Silicon Valley and traveling across the country. But um, I, I learned a lot, certainly learned a lot about uh, managed care and running complex managed care organizations. So when you were doing your joint master's program back in the day, uh, the healthcare GDP was 8 or 10%, you said, and you thought that was incredibly high. Now it's almost 20%. What are the healthcare systems and the delivery systems doing right and doing wrong, you know, that you get to that incredible increase? What do we have to do to change that trajectory? Well, it, it, and this is what gets me so excited about One Medical. Um, you know, at some level, I think we have a model that can get at that. So, as you both know really well, there's um, a lot of things in our system that aren't geared really, historically, nothing was particularly geared towards managing spend. People had insurance. They had little first-dollar responsibilities, and insurance paid uh, a fee for every service that was delivered. Um, And even before that, it was, you know, essentially it was cost-plus, cost-based reimbursement. You'd take your hospital costs, you'd submit a cost report to the government, and the government would pay your costs, including your cost of capital. So, you know, and then everything in our system was built up um, around those uh, incentives. And so, you know, through the years, through, you know, the HMO Act of 1973 to today, we started managed care, which said, well, hold on, maybe we should think about the provider networks. Maybe we should pay people a little bit differently. Maybe we should put co-pays or deductibles or incentives on, on consumers. Um, and, you know, through, through some different points in times, it seems like those have had uh, positive impacts uh, on on spend trajectory. Um, certainly, 
one might say at the margin, but 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 some impact. But fundamentally, um, these are complex systems to change, and um, people tend to be conservative, if you will, about making changes to the health and well-being of everybody in the United States. So so change can be slow. And what gets me so excited about One Medical, and and, and goes back a little bit to David's uh, comment or question is, well. We have a model that says you don't actually have to come up with a complex benefit design. You don't have to come up with complex information on specialists that consumers will somehow need to use to make decisions. You won't have to have some narrow network. You don't even have to pay the entire system differently. Primary care is less than 6% of the spend. If you just, <laughs> it's a little self-serving, sign up with us. Um, We'll do a few things for you. One, we will pay our providers on a salary basis. We will put no ancillary uh, revenues in, in our office, so we won't be making money on that. Uh, we will give 24-7 access to people whenever they need it. We will give incredible high service to people. And so we're actually just going way upstream and saying, if you give great proactive access to primary care, um, as I shared in some of that commercial data, uh, commercial spend data, you can actually reduce spend and increase um, satisfaction while not even having to touch what happens downstream. Uh, you know, yes, people are going to get complex conditions, and all right, great, but all else equal, you know, we took spend down. It wasn't like reduce, you know, bend the curve. We took it down on, without even, uh, by and large, touching the rest of the system. And now what we've started to do internally in our tech stack, we have a kind of internal ranking of specialists. So think about it as, as an internal Yelp. Our providers uh, give comments on who has good access to service. We're starting to put internal quality. Um, we, we default, uh, talking about default options, we're starting to default into generic meds. We have, our, of course, our providers um, have councils and committees to decide on practices. Uh, in, in think about in terms of HEDIS measures or longitudinal quality measures. We engage uh, members not only on their app but through email. Uh, we have very high touch and engagement. So we've done all of that without even having to, frankly, touch a large part of the rest of the healthcare system. And you know there was uh, there's a, a lot of uh, you know evidence and and, and uh, write-ups on. Um, you know, spending more, if you will, on primary care um, pays off. There was just uh, in the last couple of weeks in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, um, there's an article or a, a, a commentary saying primary care spending, which was a lever for encouraging investment. Um, and there's plenty of data that shows higher primary care spending rates, whether it's in this country and other countries, um, is connected to lower overall spending. Well, I hope you're right, because I think that's going to be, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over time for companies like yours and some of the others that are focused on the on the front door of healthcare and, and to see if they can really, you know, scale to the point of making a material difference. So thanks, Amir, very much for talking to us today. We're this really grateful. Really appreciate your spending the time on a Saturday and uh, hope to uh, to to hear more back on from our listeners about the comments on your on your commentary. And please keep uh, transforming uh, One Medical. Uh, everyone, I, uh, every, everyone I know is in it. So. <laughs>
so much. And to the rest of the listeners, just go to our website and sign up. We'd love to have you. And you get a Ginsu knife. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Amir. Have a great day. Today's guest, Amir Dan Rubin, was speaking to us today from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Wow, what an interesting story he's had, right? From um, I, What I hadn't appreciated was um, what sort of a hardcore business and process person he was. Like, yeah. you, know, I, I, you know, he has an incredible reputation around Stanford for yeah, really yeah, yeah. Um, being transformative there. Um, but he really comes at it, I, I, I guess I thought he had more of, of, a, kind of a medical grounding, but it really is in, you know, in business and processes, and he's applied it um, you know, in, a, in a range of contexts in uh, healthcare organizations. You know, I think when I spoke to him earlier, he, he really calls himself a change agent, not a health systems executive or a whatever. You know, it's really the, the title he probably put on his business card if he had a choice. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, well, it'll be interesting to see um, what uh, what happens at, uh, at One Medical because um, that's, uh, you know, it really is true. So many people I know are in it. It's um, It really is kind of like yuppie primary care, the idea that it's this agent that's going to affect all of primary care versus sort of essentially skimming the healthy people off the top, but we'll see. Yeah, well, I'm not sure he'd agree with you there, but you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. Our next guest is David Van Sickle of Propeller Health. We're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Uh, you can also rate us on iTunes so that other people can follow uh, the show and enjoy it. Well, David, great show, but I'm off to my car that goes ping. Ping, ping, ping. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, Lisa. See you later. <laughs>